What up, what up, what up? It's your boy, your main man's 20 grand. Some call me Brian Brown. Brian, Brian, Brian Brown. But my friends always remind me to be Mo. Welcome to the right place to be Mo. Topics will include the stories behind the creative works, the myths that found our ideas, and the impact that we hope to make with our creative actions. I'm your host, Brian Brown. Welcome to the show. I know y'all seen my man's in the news, Tyrone, Tyrone, Tyrone. And my producer's name is Tyrone. I'm sorry, Tyrone. It's not been a good week for Tyrone, man. Y'all were doing good, and you know, since Erica Badu called y'all out, y'all was the homeboy, but now it ain't looking too well. I want to talk about Tyrone. On this podcast, we're going to be discussing the creative process, the myths that found our ideas, and the impact we hope to make from our creative actions. Tyrone, brief recap of what's going on at Howard University. So at Howard University, student whistleblower shouted out, called out Howard University for the embezzlement practices that have been happening at Howard University since 2007. Now for the individuals who have been a part of the Howard University community or any college community, you could probably point out many examples of embezzlement that happened at your university, probably at Howard University. I don't want to get too deep into that because that's not the point. We're going to discuss the creative process of my man Tyrone. But anyway, my man Tyrone stole just north of $400,000 in financial aid from students at Howard University through a manipulation scheme that he practiced at Howard University while working in the financial aid office. Now, this young man was a student at the time, undergrad student at the time. So as you could probably imagine, he's not the only one, he probably had help. As time progresses, we're recording this show on Friday, March 30th, we'll probably find out more information about the individuals who are embezzling money from Howard University. But no, as of now, through an internal investigation, the total is close to a million dollars. Tyrone himself has taken north of $400,000. That means Tyrone is responsible for about 40% of the embezzlement that was happening during the financial aid scandal at Howard University. But I want to talk about the creative process behind Tyrone, because I'm upset with Tyrone. I'm very, I'm very mad, Tyrone. You're probably not listening, but if you're listening, I got an attitude with you, Tyrone. And it's not for the reason that you think. The hustle, the scheme, the scam, the way to get by, the way to get on, the way to move forward in the black community has existed since, pff, you name it. Name a moment in time at this moment. I'm not mad at Tyrone for scamming and scheming. If you read deep into the papers, he was stealing from needs-based grants that were going out to students. Of course, that is unfortunate, and for, for that, I also have an attitude, but that's still not the pivotal reason I'm upset with Tyrone. Tyrone, you mean to tell me you stole more than $400,000 and all you got was brunch boots and a coat? Player, come on. Do you not know from whence the university you came? Now, I'm not, I'm not expecting everyone to be a great guy, to have high morals, but if you're going to steal, it has to be for more than just your outward appearance, for your Instagrams, for your Facebook. My man's hired a media team, traveled the world, took pictures of himself, graduated from Howard, got a nice coat and some boots. Tyrone. You come from the same university as Toni Morrison, Diddy, Debbie Allen, Stokely Carmichael, Thurgood Marshall, Felicia Rashad, Douglas Wilder. 
So I feel Houston. Can you imagine what these individuals would have done with north of four hundred thousand dollars of free money? If Stokely Carmichael had that money, we'd own Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia right now. We'd be doing this podcast from Chocolate City, Alabama. But my man Tyrone wanted to get himself a nice reversible sheepskin coat, some brunch boots. Tyrone, Tyrone, Tyrone. I'm not going to make no witty uh, joke about calling Tyrone. My nigga, do better. If you got the cash, you need to be giving it to an after-school program. You need to be starting a nonprofit. You need to be doing something of worth. Don't tell me you went to Howard University, gained all that beautiful knowledge, and when you got the capital to make an impact, you did nothing. There's a responsibility for creatives. That's what I'm getting at, y'all. I'm mad at Tyrone, but I'm a very action-oriented, solution-based fella, okay? In all of this, in whatever way that you are making your way, I hope Tyrone, my producer, Tyrone, if you're listening, I hope you are doing something of worth and with the basis of authenticity. Because if you are not, you full of shit and you disrespecting the hustle. I could go for days, Tyrone. I'm not about to get off of it. There have been millions of hustlers that have come through Howard University. You were the only one to get caught. And you got brunch boots in the coat. I'm gone. I want to give a special, special shout out to Mayor Muriel Bowser for creating the 202 Creates program. When I tell you this program is celebrating the creative community of Washington, D.C. in a way that I can only dream of. If you haven't checked us out so far, definitely go check out 202creates.com. You got opportunity to come out to the work, uh, the work day that they have here. It's the best creatives in Washington, D.C. in one office, collaborating over thousands of ideas, exchanging information, and really trying to drive this creative economy in D.C. I think, was it uh, maybe like three or four days ago, the mayor put out the new infrastructure plan. There's 700,000 residents in D.C. now. There's something like a new high. In a time more like none other, we need 202 Creates to be able to provide the creative infrastructure to keep our artists in the city and get the recognition that D.C. deserves as a cultural powerhouse in this country. So definitely shout out to 202 Creates. Shout out to the mayor. I see you, Muriel Bowser, out here getting that work. I hope you can come to one of these BMO productions, get your boogie on one time, but I'm going to call you. That's all right. Now, a second ago, we were talking about my man's Tyrone, right? And I, I, I was pleading with Tyrone that I hoped that whatever he was doing, it was coming from a foundation of authenticity. During this podcast, we will be discussing the creative process. So just for this first show, instead of a guest this time, I'm just going to break down a quick philosophy, use a couple examples from old news to help y'all see a couple of things. And then as we go on through the weeks, we'll have other people bring their examples of the creative process. Today, I want to talk about, though, the formation of an idea that creates action. How do we create an idea that sparks action? 
in my grand mind, I have like a, a, a huge pyramid, if you will. If you can't just close your eyes for a second, not if you're driving, close your eyes for a second, imagine a pyramid with three different, what are those, rows. On the bottom row, of course, kind of like the old, um, uh, uh, what were the things called? Nutritional chart, like the old nutritional chart. At the bottom where the bread is, I want you to put the word myth, right? Where the fruits and vegetables were, I want you to put virtue, and where the sugar was, I want you to put action. On the bottom, what is your myth? The myth is the story that you use to create an idea, the story that you use to create an idea. Now, we're going to extrapolate this through a couple examples. Just hold on with me for a second. During that fruits and vegetable stages, that next level up is the virtue. That's the quote-unquote lesson that you learned from that story. And then on top of the sugar is that's your action, right? So during the creative process, when you're, try, when you're trying to create something that is going to end in action, you need to base it on a story, create a virtue from that story, and then act on all of those things. So your action is always just the tip of the iceberg, right? The rest of the things, the things that are in your mind that help you formulate that thought are actually the meat, the foundation of what you're going to create. So I want to do, I want to take a, a, a couple of examples before we extrapolate it into some old news. We've all seen a Lion King, right? If you haven't seen a Lion King, watch out. Spoiler alert, okay? In The Lion King, one of Mufasa's lessons is to teach Simba that he is a king and that as long as the kings above him from the stars are shining, that he is the king of everything the light touches. And I got this from my man Charlemagne, so shout out to Charlemagne. You're not listening, but I'm gonna send it to you anyway. When Simba loses his way, when, after Mufasa dies and Simba wanders through the woods and Rafiki hits him over the head with a stick and we find him in the front of these big clouds, what does Mufasa say? Mufasa says, you have forgotten me, therefore you have forgotten who you are. After Simba comes to this realization, boom, bops on his head, what's the next thing he does? He takes action and he runs from, I don't know, somewhere in the jungle back to Pride Rock, right? The myth, all of our ancestors live in the sky, and as long as they live in the sky and see us, then we have the domain to rule whatever the light touches, the virtue. If you remember these people in the, in the sky, if you remember me, Mufasa, your father, your grandfather, the people that came before you, you will remain a king. The action, being a king, right? So let's take that and let's extrapolate that to a couple of recent examples. First example. I want to talk about Netflix. Now, I'm not going to mention the name that's often juxtaposed against Netflix in this recent news because y'all will be distracted. I want to talk about Netflix. So in this recent news that we had where Netflix was going, seems to be one-on-one -on -one with a very popular star, um, especially in the black community, a lot of individuals found themselves on the side of Netflix. And your boy, your main man's 20 grand, BMO, was quite confused. Because how could you juxtapose yourself against a staple in the black culture? If you're a black person, how could you stand up for Netflix and against one of your own? So I started thinking, what were some of the, what was the creative process and the ideas that y'all were having? I'm still a little confused, but I'm going to try to guess right now. I'm thinking that your myth is, I have to be entertained. 
at the foundation of your idea is that I must be entertained. And who's mad at you? In the world of these days with so much bullshit happening, entertainment is a very vital concept. And what kind of fool would I be? Owner of a production company to say entertainment was worthless. It's not. But my question to those individuals were, in discovering your idea to side with Netflix versus a staple in your black community, what virtue are you following? It seems that your arguments and your displays of support don't really have the fruits and vegetables that you need for like a nutritional argument. I don't get it. Not later than two weeks after the report comes out, we found that Netflix actually has a problem hiring black folks. So let me ask you this. Now that it's come out that out of the 5,600 employees at Netflix, only 4% of them are black. Now that that has come out and you see that your representation is not in the backbone of Netflix, now that that myth has changed, after just hearing that statement, you can look it up on your own. It's on my Twitter page, at BMO Brown. After hearing the, the shift in that myth, does your virtue change? Does your virtue of I want to be entertained outvalue your virtues for representation? Hmm. Next thing. Another thing that quite confused me in the news about three, four months ago. What if I didn't raise my child to think that being a monkey was something that was only bad for him because of the hue of his skin? That's right. I'm talking about H&M. You remember the kid, the same kid that we remixed the picture of, we put a crown on his shirt, we put music in the background, we made him a, a beautiful symbol of how to reimagine a terrible situation, reimagine a misinterpretation, reimagine a misrepresentation. I watched it on Twitter Instagram, it was a beautiful thing. But my question is, we attacked those parents because we thought we juxtaposed our myth, our virtue of being a monkey onto this child. But my question to you now is, what if your child is, is the coolest monkey in the jungle? What if being monkey is not being a monkey is not offensive? How does that change your myth and your virtue? And thus, how does that change your action? Did you know that H&M is burning $4.6 billion worth of clothes every year to keep their factories open. H&M has so much capacity, they are burning their own inventory. They are burning their own inventory to stay open. If this kid wasn't a monkey, what's to stop? If this kid wasn't a monkey, what's to stop some of our budding entrepreneurs in the clothing game from actually using the manufacturers at H&M? Kid is a monkey. Black folks, virtue, we can't be monkeys. Action, we can't fuck with H&M. Kid is a monkey. Our virtue is, we're not offended by monkey no more. Our action is, well, since you want to act a fool, give us a seat at the table. So instead of you burning $4.3 billion worth of clothes, you could be selling my $4.3 billion worth of clothes. All I'm saying, people, is just about how you construct an idea from the myth to the virtue to the action. Some of us are so caught up in just wanting to be consistent in our myths and our virtues that our actions sometimes conflict the greater agenda. The creative process, that's all I'm saying. 
We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Place to Be Mo. It's your boy, Brian Brown. Again, my friends remind me to be Mo. As I said, during this podcast, this weekly podcast, we will be highlighting the steps in the creative process. As you can tell from my last segment, there are three steps that we're going to be focusing on, the myth, the virtue, and then, of course, the action. Every time we get together, I do want to give you a myth, either from myself or from one of my guests. This is our inaugural podcast i'm going to tell you a story i'm going to tell you the story of the great bike race of 1999 that's right bryant brown young bryant brown 10 years old bike race 1999 jefferson city missouri shout out to the show me state now for those of y'all who know me i'm not really from anywhere so that part of college was always hard where you from where you from where you from high school you go to I went everywhere, okay? Ask me where I'm going. That's that's a better question. But either way, had a long time struggling with that with that conversation. But one of the places I'm from is Jefferson City, Missouri. It is the capital city of Missouri. It's about what, like eleven percent black. I think at one point I'd been like the first or second black kid in the class. I remember when I moved in first grade in ninety six. Good year. Shout out to ninety six. Uh moved there in first grade. I remember couple of students looking at me kind of weird coming up and touching my skin and rubbing my head because they never seen a black kid before or if they had it had been on tv and never interacted one in person ironically race has nothing to do with this but i thought you know i just tell you anyway bike race in 99 so in 99 me and my mother 96 me and my mother moved from jackson tennessee where we lived in the projects across the street from uh i think lane college back in the day my mom got a, a better job working for the state in Jeff City, Missouri, we're going to uproot our life. It would not be the first time nor the last time that we do this. We uproot our life, move to Missouri with no family, no connections, just a job, right? Got in touch with the church community, yada, 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 blase, blase. We good. So we living in these townhomes. Y'all, when I tell you that these townhomes were like the stereotypical Ed, Ed and Eddie cul-de-sac apartment complex mythological sandlot community I had ever seen. We had kids from ages of like 5 to 20. Great bike race in 99. So every summer, actually it would technically be the summer, it would be the first day of summer break. Every day of the first summer break, we would ride our bikes from Brian's house, which is about a quarter of a mile up the street from the complex, all the way through the complex, which was a giant zigzagging kind of like a trail. And then it ended with, and I, no bullshit, we called it, it ended with Dead Man's Hill. And we called it Dead Man's Hill because at the hill, at the bottom of the hill, there was nothing there. There was a curb, then there was a sharp 90-degree turn into a gravel road that went into the forest that, of course, was covered in trees, right? So if you were going to go down this hill, that was the obstacle that you were facing. And the great bike race of 99, the finish line was the curb at the bottom of Dead Man's Hill. Now, if you know anything about Missouri, it's a very hilly place, right? And as I just said, my mother and I, we had just moved from the projects of Jackson, Tennessee for a better opportunity in the middle of Missouri. 
So we wasn't rolling in the dough. It's just me and my moms. We wasn't rolling in the money. So all the other kids had the mountain bikes. Their legs was moving all fast up the hills. They had the gears. They was kicking in the different gears, busting my ass. 96, they bust my ass. 97, bust my ass. 98, fourth place. But there's only six kids in the neighborhood that race. But I still got my ass bust. Same bike. And for those of y'all who know what kind of bike I'm talking about, it was the kind of bike, it's a little kid bike. It didn't have brakes, but if you pedal backward, it stopped. Right? If you just pedal back a little bit, it slow you down a little bit. That's the kind of bike that I had. And I was 10 years old. It wasn't that tall yet. So I was still bumping on this bike. So every year I'm getting my ass whooped, ass whooped, ass whooped. In 1999, there's another black kid that lived across the hall. His name is Waylon Jr. He's got a bike too. He's got a mountain bike. And I'm like, Ma, what's good? Everybody in the neighborhood got a, got a mountain bike. I ain't say everybody because I wasn't from the area yet. But everybody has a mi- mountain bike and I don't have one. She said, B, I don't got it. We don't got the money for me to buy you a new bike at the end of the school year. So I said, okay, that's fine. But in my mind, I was determined the great bike race of 1999, oh, no, Bryant Brown is going to be the winner. So it's race day, great bike race of 1999. It's a great day. First day of school break. It's a rare opportunity because usually right after school, I go to live with my dad in the summertime, but not this summer. First day of school break, everybody's up at Brian's house. The race begins. Boom, pow, everybody's gone. Everybody's pedaling. I'm in the back. Everybody's busting my ass again. I'm in the back doing my thing, just pedaling as hard as I can, doing what I can do. Now, when you get to the top of Dead Man's Hill, it's obvious that all the kids with the mountain bikes, they put their brakes on. They start slowing down. So whoever's at first place by the time you get to Dead Man's Hill, it's usually like a consensus that that person's going to win because nobody wants to kill themselves at Dead Man's Hill. I am determined not to get my ass whooped in the great bike race of 99. So everybody's going through the, the complex. They weaving through the through the buildings, through the through the snake trap. I remember, uh, what was his name? Jeremy O'Neill was in first place. Waylon Jr. was in second place. Danny was in third place. I'm in sixth place, at least 200 feet behind. We get to the top of Dead, Dead Man's Hill. I know that my strategy might not work because I see my man's Waylon is starting to pedal faster. And he's beating my man Jeremy O'Neill now. But nah, Brian Brown is not getting his ass bust in the great bike race of 99. So what do I do? I go all in. We get to the top of the hill. Waylon starts slowing down a little bit. Not your boy. I let it go full steam. Mind you, this is a dead drop. There are no apartment buildings. There are no places to turn off. There's just this curb that's probably about two feet high. Oh, I'm sorry. And there's a gutter at the curb. So when you hit the curb, you know, I'll let you imagine. But through the school year, I had been practicing how to jump the curb on Dead Man's Hill. But I never tried to do it full speed. So anyway, going down the hill, Dead Man's Hill, great bike race, 1999. I'm going full speed. Full speed. I notice, I look around, I'm in first place. Dead Man's Hill seems like it's three miles long. Going down Dead Man's Hill, I get to the curb. I remember all the training and the practices that I had done in my in my parking lot. Using Dead Man's Hill as, a, as an experiment, all I got to do is kind of lift. Just lift my front tire a little bit and I should be able to just pop up over this curb. Young Brian Brown did not know physics at 10 years old, though. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't work. So I win the race, a bike race 199. I win it. I bust everybody ass, and I'm joyful. And I know I won because I hit the curb. 
<laughs> I hit the curb. My bike flew straight up in the air because I was trying to like pop a wheelie onto the curb. I landed on like the fifth, sixth branch up a tree. And if you can imagine, my bike was like scissoring a, a tree branch. And I remember sitting there for a second, kind of like swaying and looking down like this is not going to be good. But here I am at 10 years old at the highest point of my life, both physically, literally, spiritually dedicated to winning this race. Now, I fell out the tree. I dislocated both my shoulders. The bike fell onto me. I like, broke my elbows. Basically, I got two giant scars on my elbows right now. I tell you that story right now as the myth of BMO Brown. I will not stop. There are no brakes on this bike. For those of you who have been following me over the last year, as BMO Productions has been getting off the ground, know that at the end of the day, my life is the great bike race of 1999. I may not have the resources that you have. I may not be able to switch gears like you can. But when we get to Dead Man's Hill, when the fear of failure is staring us both in the face, and when you slow down just a little bit, no, sir. I'm busting my ass in that tree 100 times out of 100 times. And if I could go back, I'd do it exactly the same. Matter of fact, if I could go back, I'd do it in 98. I'd do it in 97. I'd do it in 96. So by the time we got to 99, it'd be a race to see who was going to bust their ass first. We got one more break. BMO Productions presents Right Place to BMO. We'll be right back. Lastly, make sure you follow your boy, BMO Brown, at on Instagram, on Twitter, at Facebook, at BMO Brown. That's B-E-M-O Brown. Like the color for all your latest news on live music and the creative process podcast that we're putting together right now. I want to give a quick shout out to 202 Greggs, my man Tyrone, the producer over here. We're going to chop up the work, get it ready for y'all so we can produce a weekly show. But before I get out of here, make sure y'all check out my man's DJ Detroit from his album Amour the hit cut Heart Eyes until next time it's been your boy BMO holla at me